All right, everybody, let's um, start making our way back to our seats. We, um, there's no one coming in after us, so you can, after service, like, lounge. Because these seats are awfully comfortable, I must say. Um, yeah, so we are, I am going to send out a, a survey this week um, soliciting feedback because we want to make sure that as we make decisions about where and when we meet, uh, we're listening. So please look for that, and we would really, uh, we would really like to know your your unvarnished feedback um, about uh, uh, potentially moving here. Um, and uh, if you have a Bible with you, and I think there's Bibles in the seats, is that right? What do we got? What is there? Oh, it's a hymnal. It's next best. All right, well, sorry to get everybody all excited. You get a Bible, you get a Bible, and it's not there. It's under your seat. Check it out. Um, well, then you'll just have to either listen. I think the, the text might be in our worship guide. Um, so, and, and in future, if we do make the move, we will be able to use the screens behind us. We're just on a pretty minimal setup today. Um, we are going to continue our series in Acts, Acts chapter 25 starting at verse 23, um, going all the way through 26, 29. Let's pray before we begin. Father, I pray that through your word right now, you would shape us and form us as your people, that we would function the way that you want your church to function, that we would be a redemptive presence in the places where you have us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, once when I was out on tour, uh, we were playing in Kansas City, and um, I don't remember the name of the place where we were playing, but I decided to go for a walk around the block a couple hours before the show, and there was already some people outside, and there was, there was a group of picketers. We were getting protested, and um, these particular fellas were interesting picketers. They had um, all of these picket signs that uh, said things that weren't all that friendly. Things like, uh, you are doomed. And um, one guy who seemed to be like the, the um, what do you call him, a uh, Svengali-type leader, um, he had a, a picket sign that said, God hates, and then it had a derogatory term for gay people and a very lewd picture on it. I was like, dang, these guys are clear about what they think. And so being one that never backs down from ever anything, I could be a prison warden or a southern anything. That's a Homer Simpson line. Anyway, uh, I went over to the, to the guy with the very rude sign and said, hey, what are you guys doing? And the guy, like I'm two feet away from him, and he's like half shouts at me. He's like, we're sharing the gospel. I was like, word? That's, that's what's happening here? He's like, yeah! And he points up at his sign, and he says, that right there is the essence of the gospel! And I said, which gospel are we talking about here? He's like, the gospel that said that God loves us and Jesus died for our sins! I was really thrown because that's right. And I was like, so you're hoping people get God loves and Jesus died for them from that sign? 
It's like, yeah! <laughs> it, isn't it funny sometimes how a true message can be absolutely buried by the rhetoric with which it's delivered? This is happening all over our society right now. We're living in a, in a climate in which the more shrill and bombastic communication, it, it, it goes more viral, right? Like it's a competition for who could be the most extreme and get their social media things shared, get ratings for their talk radio show or whatever. And one thing I want to point out to you guys about this, because we all know what I'm talking about. One thing is that it is not meant to persuade, is it? It's meant to get their tribe riled up, and anybody who disagrees is going to find it repellent, correct? Here's the other thing I want to point out, is that we are exposed to this stuff all the time, and I think that we'd be foolish if we didn't think that we were partly shaped by it, if we weren't learning the lessons that our culture is teaching us. So maybe there's a point of view worth hearing, but it's completely buried in this harsh and shrill rhetoric that's all over the place. They might have a great point it because it's buried under, you know, layers and layers of, of just bile. I'm so glad that the church has not gone along with this. I mean, that's a relief, you know? Sometimes when the world really goes sideways and the church just keeps it, I am kidding, of course. <laughs> It, 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 the, if you were to listen to Christians engage across, like trying to persuade someone or trying to talk to somebody they disagree with, it sounds just like the world. Listen, look, look, at, look at the social media influencers. You can hear the, the, the many, many preachers that are just screaming shrill politics from the pulpit, like me. No. <laughs> And it doesn't look much different. And it's worse because it's not just saying perhaps something true about, you know, a direction society needs to head or whatever, but we're the bearers of the most important message possible, of the gospel. And if, if, if we sound, if we communicate in the same way that our culture does, that message is going to get buried underneath our unhinged rhetoric. We are going to see Paul come before people today with whom he's on the other side from, people with whom he doesn't agree, people who actually need to hear the truth, people who need to be called to repentance. And remember, the book of Acts, it is not just a recording of history. It's an ancient history, which means that it not only preserves the events of the early church, but it's meant to guide future generations. How are we supposed to uh, speak the truth? What should it sound like? Look with me at, at verse 23. It says, so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So what's going on? We left Paul last week in Roman custody. He has now been in Roman custody for two years. It wasn't like state pen or anything like that, but he's not free, and he hasn't been free. Now, 
the people who, who we hear about here, these are, these are famous people. This is like, you know, and then John F. Kennedy came in. So, so to an ancient person, they didn't need to be told who Agrippa and Bernice were. We, we need to be told. Okay, so what, what's happened is that, uh, is that the, the Roman governor, the new Roman governor, doesn't know what to do with this prisoner Paul that he just inherited. And so he's bringing in Agrippa to, to help him out. Now, Agrippa is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. And Bernice is his sister. She's the great-granddaughter of Herod the Great. Festus, who we see mentioned here, is the Roman governor. All right? So you have to imagine they're in the city of Caesarea, one of the great cities built by Herod the Great, one of the great cities of the Roman Empire, in the palace, in the audience chamber. And Luke wants us to imagine the great pomp that Agrippa and Bernice come in with. Okay, so just imagine like a presidential inauguration mixed with Puff Daddy's birthday party, right? It's, it's extravagant. It's huge. It's gold everywhere. It's, you know, like attendance and flowers, the whole, the whole nine yards, all right? So do you have that picture in your head? These are very powerful people. These are very famous and important people. And then the one who holds the actual power, Festus, the Roman governor. And then we're told military tribunes. These are also representatives of the Roman government. And then we're told the prominent men of the city. And not even mentioned is just the people from the city who would come to a trial like this. And then we're told in comes Paul. We're supposed to imagine the contrast between the opulence of the Roman officials and the, 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 the Herodian uh, king and princess, and then Paul in his simple robes and chains. This is the situation. Verse 24, Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer, but I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So he probably didn't follow that. But Festus, the Roman governor, the new Roman governor, is in a pickle. The, he can't set Paul free because the, the Jewish leaders are known to revolt and they want him dead. He also can't execute him because Paul is a Roman citizen who has not been tried. And he, he appealed to the emperor, so he has to send him, only he doesn't know what the charges should even be. So Paul's been sitting for two years, right? So he brings in Agrippa, who is very familiar with the, with, with the, the Jewish people. He's not himself a Jew, but is religiously Jewish. Um, and so Agrippa is going to decide what the charges against Paul would be. Y'all following me? Okay. So all of this is to say that today Paul could get his freedom. Agrippa could say no charges at all, set him free. He's done nothing wrong. Or he could get capital charges. This is a big deal for Paul. Verse 1 of, of chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand, which is what you did when you started your speech in the ancient world, and made his defense. 
Now, we're going to see Paul do two things. One, he's going to argue against the charges, and two, he's got all these illustrious people present. He's going to call them to repent and believe the gospel. This is what we always see Paul do. He never misses an opportunity. He says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day, night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? All right. So what does Paul start with? He, he tells Agrippa, who is himself a believer in the Old Testament faith and Bernice, he finds a point of empathy. He says, it's because of the promise God made to our fathers, in particular, of the resurrection of the dead, a hope that Agrippa shares. And so Paul finds a point of empathy. He finds common ground. He, he understands, he sees from Agrippa's point of view. And he tries to persuade him through not only empathy, but logic, where he says, he says, this whole thing is over. I'm proclaiming that someone has risen from the dead. You who know that God is going to raise the dead, how could we have a problem with that? How could that be a charge? Right? So at the same, he's trying to persuade, but he's not using, he's, he's not using, um, what do I want to say? He's not using coercion. He's not using threats. He's not coming in there in a heavy-handed way. Instead, he finds an empathetic connection with, with Agrippa, and he uses logical persuasion. Now, this is really key because in our day and age, empathetic and logical persuasion is scarce. More likely, you're going to find a tribal rant. Right? And, and we are in danger of thinking, that's how you do it. You encounter someone who disagrees with you, and you let them have both barrels. There, there's a lot of problems with that. And, you know, sometimes the onion captures things so perfectly, I just have to read it to you. Former conservative recalls belittling tirade from college student that brought him over to left. St. <laughs> Paul, Minnesota, explaining how the string of personal insults and sharply worded accusations caused him to reevaluate every one of his political leanings. Former conservative Vincent Welsh recalled for Reporters Friday the belittling tirade from a college student that brought him over to the left. It was last October. I just mentioned my support for a Republican congressional candidate on Twitter when this 19-year-old responded by telling me I was an ignorant you-know-what who hated the poor, that I was everything that was wrong with the world. It just completely opened my eyes to how incorrect my whole worldview was, said Welsh, fondly recounting how the sophomore sociology major converted him to liberalism on the spot by calling him a hateful bigot, saying he was too much of a brainwashed puppet of corporate interests to know what was best for him instantaneously invalidating the 56 years of individual thought and life experience that had led him to his previous political beliefs. <laughs> That's funny. It's 
because it's true. It, it, it seems that we are learning habits that when we encounter someone who disagrees with us, we don't seek empathy. We don't seek to persuade with logic. We don't try to find common ground and try and see things from their point of view. Instead, we tend to react very stridently. Unfriend me if you this, right? That sort of thing. We're trying to use intimidation. We're trying to say, well, I'm going to get really angry if you disagree with me. You better agree. I'm going to shame you. I'm going to get people to pile on you. When, when we respond instead, when we speak the truth through empathetic and logical persuasion, the empathy, when, when you're empathetic with someone, when you really try and see it from their point of view, what it tells them is, one, they're not alone. You're not encountering an enemy here, but someone who cares and understands, even if they disagree. And when, when we bother to actually have a logical argument to try and persuade someone, it, it indicates respect, right? You're worth persuading here. It invites discussion and participation. But also, you know, the, the content of the truth is really important. I'm going to tell you what I mean. Let's look at, at uh, verse 9 now. Paul says, I, was, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison and receiving authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So Paul is telling about who he was before. He says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Now listen, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. So, so Jesus is sending him for a purpose. He says, why? Verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may, be, they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That, that was lengthy, but you see what Paul did. He started with his own story. This is who I was. The, the accusation that I'm against the Jews is untrue. I was more Jewish than all of them. But something happened. I encountered the risen Christ. And now he has sent me what? to drop the gospel on all you guys. Did you notice that he slipped the gospel in there? He went from defending himself to preaching the gospel. He says, I'm here so that your eyes would be open, that y'all would move from darkness to light, from Satan to the kingdom of God, and, and get forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. In case, in, in case that wasn't clear enough, verse 19, he says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, 
I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small townies who were behind me and to great tribunes, Agrippa, Bernice, Drusilla, Festus, and the, and, and, and the prominent men, to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. All right, so... Do you hear him again at the same time defending himself, saying, hey, I am keeping the Old Testament, not breaking it. I am declaring to all of you people what? That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So Paul speaking the truth. I don't know if you noticed this as we've been with Paul. It's always centered on the gospel. He can't help himself. For him, it is the center of all of his thinking. So even when he's trying to get himself exonerated, he, is, he ends up declaring the gospel. We need to speak the truth, not only with, with empathetic and logical persuasion, but centered on the gospel. Um, the, uh, the, one of the first pieces of international law is something called Lemkin's Law. It's the, the UN... Uh, ban on genocide. Now, the reason it's called Lemkin's Law is because there was a lawyer named Raphael Lemkin who made it his entire life's work to get this law passed. He was obsessed with it ever since the teens, right? Not his teens, but the teens of the century. And, uh, and nobody would listen to him until after the Second World War. And, and the UN was founded to prevent another world war. And, and this is when the UN didn't have a permanent headquarters. It was just out in Long Island somewhere, and he would just walk around. He wasn't even supposed to be there. He would literally walk into people's offices, grab whoever he could, and get them to support this law. And he was so, he, he was so centered on this that even, like, he had, a, he had like a physical health breakdown because he overworked. And he, um, he was on break in France once, just little R&R. And it was said he was at some sort of dance, and there was this beautiful woman, and he, he asked her to dance the tango with him. And he described her as not only beautiful, but everything she said was intelligent and meaningful. Right? You see where this is going? Well, he found out that she was from Chile and of, of indigenous descent. And that was all he needed. He's like, well, you know, your people, the Mayans, were, and he went into this whole thing about genocide, tried to get her to, to, to support the, the genocide ban. The guy couldn't help himself. That was the center for him. Everything that we hold true, whether, it's, whether we're talking about politics, whether we're talking about morality, it, it, it needs to find alignment. It needs to find its center in the gospel of Jesus. Why is that? It's because the root of the problems in our world that we're trying to address with policies, politics, and the rest of it are spiritual in origin. Now, I'm not saying don't be involved civically. I'm not saying don't advocate for good policy. Of course, that that's, that's all, all has its place. But ultimately, 
the issues that plague us are spiritual in origin. They, they come from the fact that we are cut off from God, that there is a sickness inside us that only the gospel can heal, and no law or policy or program or movement can touch them. Also, when we are centered on the gospel, even if we're not saying Jesus died and rose again for your sins, when that is our center, when we encounter someone with whom we disagree, someone with whom we're trying to communicate the truth, it turns them from an opponent to someone just like us, right? You, you cannot be thinking to yourself, man, I really need the mercy of God, and so do they, and see someone as an opponent or an enemy. I wonder sometimes if, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez could hear what, what much of the church says about her. Would she hear the gospel or would she hear herself dragged? If Mitch McConnell or whoever could hear what much of another portion of the church said about him, either online or in private conversations, would he hear the gospel? Would he be persuaded? Would he hear the love of Christ in what we say? So when we speak the truth, we need to speak it with empathetic and logical persuasion, but also centered on the gospel. And, and also there, there, there's a challenge here. There's something difficult. It's, it's how can you be bold and humble at the same time? Because oftentimes, if you, are, if you have strong convictions, it can make you a very harsh person to those who disagree. We've all experienced this. And then if you have an easy time kind of being humble, it's in reality because we're just people-pleasing, you know? How can we have bold conviction and humility? There's a song by a guy named Andrew Bird that I like a lot, and he's writing about our current political moment, just came out a couple of years ago, and uh, it's called Bloodless, in parentheses, for now. Gives you an idea what the song's about. And he, he says this. He says, well, the best lack all conviction, and the worst keep sharpening their claws. They're peddling in their dark fictions, while what's left of us, well, we just hem and we haw. So it's kind of this, either you're a person of strong convictions and you're awful, or you're a person of no convictions or you're just completely detached. Is it possible to have strong convictions while remaining humble and approachable? Look with me at verse 24. It says, as, as he was saying this, as, and as he was saying these things in his defense, there's a ghost in this building, guys. I was told about it earlier. It's cool. Don't worry. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind, rude. And he's sitting there arguing for his life, trying to share the gospel. He just, he just landed this thing with a triple axle, and he's got jazz hands out. <sighs> Preaching the gospel to end. And Festus cuts across all that. You're crazy, Paul. All this study's driven you mad. How does Paul respond? Because we saw how he responded last week to the high priest when he had him struck. He, you know, he cursed him. Look at verse 25. Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. It was a very polite response for such a rude interjection. But I am speaking true and rational words. Okay, so he stood his ground. 
but it was also humble. Let, let's look at what he says next in verse 26. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa calls him out. Listen to this. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Guys, this, this is not spineless bootlicking, okay? Paul isn't just trying to make nice-nice with King Agrippa. He's calling him. He's saying, turn to Jesus. You believe the prophets, right? And, and, and Agrippa gets what he's saying. Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a, a Christian? Can you imagine this scene right now? Paul in plain robes, probably a dirty beard. I don't know. That's how I imagine him. And chains. Agrippa in a throne, balling. Everybody else, dressed to the nines, probably had an olive oil bath or something like that that morning, looking terrific. They're sitting in seats of power. Paul's a prisoner. And yet, he's the one who's saying, I have something you guys need. That's boldness. But he was so nice. And look, what he, look at how he answers Agrippa. He's like, because Agrippa's like, hey, in, in this short speech, you're going to persuade me to be a Christian. Paul said, whether short or long, he's like, I'll go as long as you want me to. But yes, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me today, Roman tribunes, Governor Festus, Bernice, Drusilla, would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. I think Paul was making a joke there. He's like, absolutely, I want all of you to know all that I have known in Christ, but not, not, not this part, obviously, not, not the chain part, right? Paul is unintimidated. Paul is bold, yet humble. How does he do that? Because of the gospel. We need to speak the truth. Not only with logical and empathetic persuasion, but centered on the gospel with humble boldness. What, what this ultimately comes down to is that Paul wasn't giving his words. Paul wasn't giving his message. He was appointed to deliver Christ's message. And that's what allowed him to do all this. You see, Paul was an apostle. Apostle means one who is sent. It was, it was a term that operated in the ancient world. If you were a king or a noble or an official, you'd send someone who was an official emissary with your message. Could that person say whatever they wanted? No, they weren't delivering their message. We call the church apostolic. It's true, it was founded by the apostles, but also we carry the message of Christ. Jesus has given us his message. We need to speak the truth like Jesus, which is what we've seen Paul do today. When you're, when you're giving a message for someone else, you say it how they would say it, right? Some of you guys, most of you guys don't know this, I'm about to tell you a secret, but Sharon writes some of my texts because, because I'm a bad texter. And uh, I remember one time she's like, oh, you got to text this person back. I was like, 
doing the dishes or whatever. She's like, you got to text this person back. I was like, well, will you text them for me? And she sent this text with like emojis, exclamation points, lots of questions about how they're doing. And, and, and when I looked at it later, I was like, I would never use emojis. I, I barely even use punctuation, a period, sometimes. And she's like, all right, all right. And so the next time she's like, okay, you want me to send a text? I was like, yeah. She's like, well, well would you say it like this? I was like, no, shorter. And she's like, like this? I was like, no, shorter, two words, lunch Wednesday, question mark, that's it, right? And so, so now she figured out, like, like she has learned when she's going to speak for me, she does it so that no one ever knows, right? So it sounds just like me. <laughs> that's silly. We can't let Christ's message that we've been entrusted with be buried under harsh rhetoric. I don't care if you're writing your dissertation or a Twitter post. I don't care if you're calling your senator or replying to an email that rubbed you the wrong way. If we're gonna speak the truth, and we do need to speak the truth, don't hear me say just be nice, we do need to speak the truth. It needs to be with empathetic and logical persuasion centered on the gospel with humble boldness because each and every one of us who follow Christ Jesus has given us his message, and we need to speak the truth like Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would give us the grace to respond mercifully, to see people with you.